losing convicts are going back to Cali. Green Flash joins Sweetwater up in smoke. You went to one to be a polygamist with a joint acquisition. This is It's All Beer, Mergers and Acquisitions Edition. Welcome to It's All Beer, beer news as it was meant to be delivered by two vulgar drunks who spend as much time making dick jokes as they do talking about beer. I'm Jeremy Jones. I'm Tyler Zimmerman. How you doing this after our after our holiday uh, 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 you know holiday month where apparently everything happened? Fuck right! Like <laughs> if I knew this much shit would happen when we took a break, we'd take more breaks. Oh, <laughs> uh, we got uh, a, a bunch of shit to get into, but uh, we'll take a minute because you brought us beer, Tyler. What, what should we start? What should we start off with? So we'll start with the Western Collective uh, Volume One of their fantasy series. Um, the reason we're going with this is it actually ties into an article we had talked about before our break, uh, which the article was the three trends on Tavor, or from Tavor to see in craft beer uh, for the 2021 flavor trends. And the first thing they had actually talked about was uh, the Phantasma powder, which if you're like, Fuck, I can't remember. It's been that long. Uh, the Phantasm powder is from Phantasma Labs in New Zealand. It's dried, granulated Sauvignon Blanc grape skins. <laughs> you can tell how much beer you drink because you're like, you just hit that word Sauvignon and you're like, Sauvignon. I was like, fuck, I, yep. Brain's not quite firing on all cylinders right now so looks are you like not western doing, collective are you uh, not doing dry january is that the problem oh no i'm definitely not doing dry january uh but yeah it looks like western got a hold of some of the phantasm powder um in this beer double ipa i i don't it's very good i mean full of tropical fruit um a little bit of floral like a Kind of a very kind of a herbal, like a sweet herbal, like basil bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know Which if I, I get that more in the middle. I don't know if like if you if you gave this to me, I would uh, identify it as anything other than a quite a, uh, quite a nice hazy, but just a hazy. Mm-hmm. Um, although I I think the 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 phantasm powder like kind of accentuates the tropical fruit. Yeah. Um, there I, is kind I, of a if you would have gave this to me without telling me, I could almost see it as like. A real heavy, like, Nelson Savine hop. It does have, like, a sharp, like, white wine. Character. At the, at the end of the tropical fruit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well done. Yeah. So, anyway, we've we, we've had our beer. Uh, let's talk about everybody selling out to uh, everybody today. Um, <laughs> uh, Tyler, do you want to get us kicked off? Well, one of the biggest acquisitions that happened while we were on break was kings and convicts deciding ballast point wasn't enough. <laughs> I mean, I we I, it's a shame that we did not do the Deadpool. The, the Deadpool. I'm like sitting there watching. This. One of us would have put kings and convicts on it just for shits and gigs. <laughs> I think one of us might have because um, of because uh, ballast point happened the year before the Deadpool. But True. Um, but anyway, but uh, they went and they went and bought themselves yet another one. Yes. Uh, so little backstory just before. We hop in if you're like, what the fuck are these people talking about? So Kings and Convicts, uh, at the time, a small brewery out of Chicago uh, that had a 
like thousand barrel a year production uh ended up it's from a the two founders one from england one from australia hence the kings and the convicts uh if you don't understand that google it educate yourself you fucking pleb uh, but, uh, <laughs> English people sent Australia to uh, uh, Australia uh, was their prison I mean so were the United States but <laughs> we revolted a little sooner uh, but well, I think I think they would admit that Americans are revolting <laughs> but uh, they with the help of some investors uh, ended up in a round of golf talking to one of the high ups of Constellation Brands uh jokingly was like hey what are you gonna do with bell's point you should sell it to us and he's like well how much and they dumb luck their fucking way into buying bell's point well it's i mean it kind of sounded it kind of sounded like if i remember the story correctly they were sort of kind of talking to somebody sort of jokingly and then the next day somebody from constellation reached out and said are you guys serious yeah <laughs> uh, so with this uh they decided to kind of buy another OG craft brand from a big con big brewery consolation. Uh, so Molson Coors uh, decided they were going to discontinue the St. Archer brand. Hopeful, uh, one of the legacies from again San Diego. Um, if I remember correctly, they sold back in the heyday, a little bit before. I'm trying to see the exact date, but they, Molson Coors stated, with the rise of the flavor malt beverages, uh, the hard seltzers, everything, that St. Archer was just kind of dying on the vine, and so decided they were going to cease production of it. Uh, when they did that, uh, they had to find a place to offload their two tap rooms and their brewing system which is a 40 barrel brew system uh and kings and convicts came back into the picture decided they were going to buy it from molson cores uh molson cores is still retaining the rights to the saint archer brand uh, so they literally just bought the equipment yes it, they saint archer is effective immediately dead I mean, I there was a brief moment when it came here into this market. It was right before they announced the sale with Molson Coors. Yep. So 2015, um, uh, Molson Coors acquired the brewery. And then it last. And then I saw it around here for, oh, I want to say about three months after that before uh, it went away. Because at the time, it, they had an IPA. They had two IPAs, maybe something light, a blonde ale, and they were fine yep they were perfectly adequate beer <laughs> obviously since I, the, i'm not exactly remembering any of them with a, uh, with extreme fondness they're like yeah they were they, they they were beer they they did you could drink them and they would make you happier yep so with this date molson course stated uh it's not really quite fitting the growth profile they're going for going forward uh there's lingering supply chain shortages and the rise of beer alternatives really just led to kind of the demise of that. Uh, so Kings and Convex is buying that. They'll get the Lucadia and Miramar tap rooms as well as the brewing facility, um, which 
kings and convicts wanted to do because the ballast point brewing facility that they have uh runs bigger batches and they wanted something a little smaller the ballast point brew system they have is 150 and 300 barrels which is great for when they're pushing out like ballast point sculpted mm. but for some of their smaller kings and convicts beer they don't really want to do 150 barrels so they purchased this to start doing some more special one-off craft craft focus releases on a 40 barrel batch uh, there were 40 brew uh, employees that Kings and Convicts is actually going to offer jobs to uh, and they worked in brewing packaging and the tap room uh, the sales marketing staff that are employed by Molson Coors uh, we'll have to figure that out with Molson Coors basically <laughs> but Kings and Convicts says they're going to offer them all that uh the day-to-day -day operations people uh their jobs if they want to continue working for kings and convicts that's awesome uh otherwise they can proceed to look elsewhere uh the one thing i noticed in the chicago tribune article was oddly enough so they were in the process of trying to open a facility in southern Wisconsin. Kings and Convicts. Kings and Convicts. Okay. Uh, which they ultimately decided to scrap. Uh, and they ha the person that's helping them finance this, helped them finance the Ballast Point transaction was Richard Mahoney. Uh, but they were trying to open that, decided to end up scrapping it when they saw St. Archer basically come on the market and basically said, you know what, screw it. Uh, we're going to focus on the West Coast and we're going to hit it hard. Open that up. Especially since you already have a, you already own a brand that has a legacy on the West yes. Coast. Yeah, it does. It kind of it. It does make a lot of sense to plant more roots there, especially if you're not. You know, if it really is for the facilities and the equipment, set up Kings and Convicts, San Diego, and yep. and in another Ballast Point tap room because and, they were uh, in the. So, so they're gonna have the normal Ballast Point tap room. Then the Saint Archer tap rooms are gonna become Kings and Convict Ballast Point tap rooms, as well as the West Coast as well as the headquarters for Kings and Convicts is going to move to the so they're West moving West. so they're moving west they're going to move to San Diego yes uh they're still going to keep the Highwood tap room in Chicago um keep that relatively unchanged they said it's not really a big deal for them there um they're mainly out west all the time right now with the Ballast Point deal anyways um but they were super excited to get that and flat out said if it weren't for them buying ballast point they would have never they'd be in southern wisconsin right now i if they if they if they hadn't bought ballast point yes. or they hadn't bought saint archer they'd be in southern wisconsin uh, they if they hadn't bought ballast point they would have never looked to buy saint archer well yeah that can, i mean because why so they would have had the although ironically i should uh, it, it it almost sounds like did it say what the uh, what the Saint Archer deal went for? Or because I would I would 
that sounds like a smaller deal than Ballast Point. Yeah, it doesn't say, but they're not getting the brand, so I'm assuming a much smar- smaller deal because they're basically just getting the real estate and the equipment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Although I'm not sure how much the State Hunter brand is worth now. <laughs> but um, Throw that in as a bit of an extra. They, Molson Coors is wanting to retain ownership of that. The original owner who sold it to Molson Coors uh, said after hearing the news of this, he was sad to see basically the brand he created be shelved. And, and also, I can't hear you because my ears are stuffed full of money. Uh, <laughs> no, and that he may reach out to Molson Coors to see if he could buy back oh, really? the St. Archer brand. That would be interesting to to to, to uh, have Saint Archer return to I don't know, its its original owner to try to build it back. <laughs> it would that would that's interesting because I think something like Saint Archer is what a, a lot of uh, craft beer fans were worried about with a lot of acquisitions by mm-hmm. like uh, by big beer was that they're they don't know how to run it they're gonna they're going to you know. St- uh, strip down quality ingredients, quality assurance. It's going to become garbage beer, and then they're going to forget about it, and then you know, and you know it's just going to rot on the vine. Yeah, and that's kind of seems to be what happened with Saint Archer. It just never it never had the pull that I think Molson Coors was hoping for. Yeah, which, um, but kind of back to this little bit of information on the Wisconsin deal uh, that they were looking at. Uh, they broke ground in 2019 on a 50,000 square foot production brewery in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, about five miles north of the Illinois border. The project was not completed, and the deal between the brewery and the land developer dissolved. And then said the Ballast Point deal then shifted their attention more towards the West Coast, making it an obvious move. Um, and said if we didn't do Ballast Point, we'd still be in southern Wisconsin. Um, and with their capacity, the St. Archer deal made perfect sense, and they had to jump on it and focus more West Coast-oriented. So, I'm curious to see, because now they're able, uh, and they talked about how they're still trying to keep a smaller footprint for Ballast Point, really kind of keep that a lean portfolio they are wanting to open back up a ballast point tap room in san francisco again uh and then keep the kings and convict uh tap room in illinois so basically it'd make five tap rooms they're running uh with the two they just purchased the san the ballast point san diego and ballast point san francisco with kings and convicts so i'm curious to see do we start seeing Kings and Convicts almost become their national brand? And in the article they talk, the Kings and Convicts is more focusing kind of loggers where your ballast point sticking with your IPAs. Yeah, yeah. So, interesting. I will... It, it, I'm really... The, the fact that Kings and Convicts came out of the woodwork and bought them. Now, I mean, now, now that I kind of understand it's basically the equipment and the facilities and it's a way to grow what they already have, it makes a whole lot more sense. I'm When I first saw that news, I'm like, shit. <laughs> and they want to be able to do anything, any of this without the Richard Mahoney, yeah. who was a huge wine industry player, um, because 
he helped finance the Bell's Point, um, and then helped in this deal as well. So, I think w- without them having some friends with deep pockets, kings and convicts would have never clearly made the news <laughs> you, when you when you have the chance to buy ballast point you're gonna need uh, two things immediately uh, a guy with a lot of money <laughs> and the and the uh, ability to reawaken a brand that just got decimated which from what the two articles that i had kind of read on this seems ballast points starting to kind of reheal the damaged brand that it was mm-hmm. with consolation and um I think with adding this smaller brew system to help with theirs, they can start doing some more fun Ballast Point and Kings and Convicts beers to really kind of reinvigorate the brand. Jeremy, what's the next one we got? Uh, what the figgity fuck is going on with Green Flash news now? Uh, uh, the other one that uh, happened while we were on break. Which is really funny because... Earlier in 2021, I was down in San Diego for a wedding, and I we were hanging out in the hotel, and I had walked over to a local gas station to buy some beer and liquor, because uh, my wife's like, I'm going to take a nap, and I'm like, I'm going to get drunk by myself then. Uh, <laughs> and it felt bad walking over to the, bre- uh, the brewery bar hotel for like the third time, so I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm surprised you had the capacity to feel that shame. Uh, yeah. Uh, and we also had shit to do later that night, so I was like, I should probably stay at the hotel. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, walked over, and I remember texting Jeremy a picture, because there was, like, a whole section of green flash. And Jeremy goes, what the fuck? I thought they were dead. <laughs> I'm not the only one. No! <laughs> but, uh, green flash is almost... I, it, it truly is the unflushable turd that it, it, uh, the, of the craft beer world. Um, and uh, while, while we were on break, perhaps the I, for me, the, this was the bigger news than even uh, the Kings and Convicts and Archer, was that the deal they cut that may keep it floating a little while longer, maybe not. It was, last month it was announced that Tilray, um, the world's largest cannabis company that uh, also owns Sweetwater, will be buying up Green Flash and Alpine Beer. The deal was announced internally on December 17th and was apparently leaked to the full pint of all places on December 20th. Oh, damn. Um, and while this may feel like it will provide some stability for a brand that's basically been the poster child for instability, um, I'm not so sure, but uh, we'll get to that in a moment because first I thought it would be worth catching up everybody on what Green Flash is and why it sort of has the reputation that it has is, you know, why exactly when Tyler sent me that picture, I was like, wait, they're still around? Because Green Flash, if you're you're into craft beer at all or were into craft beer, um, oh, like five years ago, you probably know Green Flash because it was probably being sold in your market. Mm -hmm. Which I'd be... It would have been really kind of fun if we would have been able to reach out to Bobby of Idaho City Grocery and get him on the podcast for this because he used to be the owner of Alpine Brewery and sold it to Green Flash. The hell? Well, call that bus motherfucker. <laughs> I didn't know that that guy was here. <laughs> yeah. So part of when he sold it, he moved up here. Uh, 
and bought Idaho City Grocery, opened it up, or remodeled it. Uh, it's basically the beer buyer there. We'll um, call that guy. <laughs> I don't specifically have his number, but next time I'm near Idaho City, I'll see. He, but I know he, I've heard he started Alpine, then moved to Idaho. By the way, Idaho. All right, so if you if you if you if you don't know Idaho geography, and why the fuck were you would you if you're not here? Idaho City is literally an old mining town about an hour north of Boise. It uh, hasn't. No, like northeast. Whatever. Um, but it's but it has not changed all that much. In the last 150 years, you if you plant yourself in the middle of Idaho City, you look around and go, are you shitting me? This, this is... Yeah, and I can't remember if he was the owner, but he was somehow involved in the sale of Alpine to Green Flash. I want to say he was the owner. Uh, and, yeah, because I remember hearing someone who had talked to him say that he never got his full money from Green Flash because when they purchased that and started going <laughs> Why downhill does, right after well, that. Well, as I, as I started like doing some research, it doesn't surprise me as I started doing research into the full history of Green Flash, which, um, and let's get into that. Um, which Renee's still pissed about the Silver Stout. Like every other fucking brewery in the world, uh, they got their start in San Diego. Um, and they started uh, their brewery in 2002. And for the better part of a decade... Uh, they they developed their recipes. They brewed up some good beer. They didn't make a lot of money. In fact, they struggled quite a bit for a while. Um, but after almost 10 years, they started to make it work. In 2011, they moved to uh, a much larger facility in Mira Mesa. Three years later, Green Flash edged onto the list of the 50 largest craft uh, breweries in the country at number 48. Two years later, the owners took out a $20 million loan to build Green Flash in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Oh, I remember the Virginia um, when everyone was jumping over to North Carolina, Virginia. Right. This one, that this, this brewery would have would have had, a, had a capacity of 100,000 barrels a year and would have um, would make immediately make it the third largest brewery in the state of Virginia. It never opened, did it? It did. We'll get, yes. Um, then came 2014, uh, which was kind of the banner year for Green Flash. In July of that year, uh, they made a deal with St. Fuellen to brew and distribute their West Coast IPA across Europe. Okay. Um, there's not a lot of information about how that deal went, but based on other attempts to bring American craft beer to Europe, I'm guessing it was meant with a collective shrug from Europeans that, who said basically, yeah, we produce world-class beer and we sell it for 50 cents a bottle. So, good luck, Americans. Fuck your IPA. <laughs> um, in November that same year, 2014, uh, Green Flash announced that they would be buying Alpine Brewery and using their new facility in San Diego, the one in Mira Mesa, to effectively double Alpine's output. Um, and apparently then the at least one of their owners came to Idaho City and started a grocery store. Um, during all the during all this, um, they managed to... This all happened in 2014. They expanded their footprint to all 50 states, Canada, Mexico, Japan, and Singapore. Um, in 2015, they started a new venture, the Cellar 3 Tasting Room, which specialized... Oh, I remember Cellar 3. Right? Uh, that's what, as I'm looking through these articles, oh, shit, I remember that. I, oh, I remember that. Um, they specialized in wild fermented and barrel-aged beer. By 2016, the Virginia Beats facility was finally open, 
and uh, and Green Flash was officially the 37th largest brewery in the United States. And that is pretty much the high water mark right there. Everybody keep your arms and legs inside the roller coaster because this shit is going downhill. Well, I feel right around then, too, was when right around the Cellar 3, they had that super big infected batch of Silva Stout, uh-huh. which if you aged it for any length of time, because the bottle I bought, we popped immediately at the bottle shop we worked at. And it was delicious. It was okay. I mean, I don't. I don't remember it being that spectacular. It was okay. It wasn't. It? I, I mean, I, I it was a very good barrel aged. I remember it being it being really expensive at the time. And now, by really expensive, I'm like, I think it was twenty bucks, which is not that. I think it was fifth or sixteen, but it was a seven fifty. I seem to remember like it was like twenty. I just I remember like looking at that bottle going crazy. Maybe with our discount, it was sixteen. I think it was. I think that's correct. In fact, that would make sense because that would. Uh, and then, if you aged it, it just fucking soured. Yeah, and it wasn't a terrible sour stout, but it wasn't supposed to be that. Yeah, uh, if you don't, unless you're out making a sour stout, your stout should not be sour. That's just a, a rule of thumb. Um, but anyway, so that brings us to January of 2018. When Green Flash announced they were pulling out of 32 states and slashing their workforce by 15%. Um, in March, a cute little ad appeared for a, quote, brand new turnkey brewing facility in Virginia Beach. And I, I remember, remember yeah. showing you that article. And everybody going, wait a minute, are they talking about Green Flash in Virginia Beach? Yes. Um, it wasn't long before the company was forced to admit that they were selling the brewery they had spent three years and $20 million building only to close it down 18 months after it opened. Not great. By the end of March of 2018, they announced they were pulling out of 10 more states and closing down Cellar 3. Um... None of none of which was apparently enough to even slow down the money they was that was gushing out of this company like a hemophiliac on meth that just nicked an artery. Um, in April, Comerica Bank uh, foreclosed on the twenty million dollar loan and sold the brewery to a private equity firm. Um, and for most people, myself included, that was kind of the end. Um, maybe Green Flash would hang on as a local powerhouse. Maybe they would slowly collapse inside their own asshole. Um, there is one more adorable bit to this story, though. In June of 2018, Green Flash announced that they would be opening a new brew pub in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> which, Lincoln, Nebraska is pretty much the opposite of New York City. If you can't make it there, you're not making it anywhere. <laughs> Plans for this actually started back in 2017, but it's interesting that a minor thing like being foreclosed on didn't really stall these plans. But in the end, Green Flash couldn't even make it in Nebraska. Their Lincoln facility closed. Um, just They closed their facility one day in 2019 and just never opened it again. Leaving one news source in Nebraska with the headline, Green Flash appears to be closed for good. Green Flash left Nebraska, Nebraska in the traditional way, namely in the middle of the night, hoping nobody really noticed. <laughs> Um, and that's pretty much it. The only hint that Green Flash was still alive was that picture you sent me uh, last year of that. I mean, an impressive. Well, I remember after that they had filed for bankruptcy. 
It was well. It was all this was during that time. Was they filed okay. for bankruptcy? They filed for bankruptcy um, when the when the bank foreclosed on them. They filed for bankruptcy, <clears throat> but they didn't. They filed for a type of bankruptcy that didn't relinquish all their assets. Right. Uh, it all got sold to the private equity firm, which a lot of the investor original investors and, were a part of. And by the way, the um, the the CEO, the the guy who started it, um, uh, um, I, forget, I have his name somewhere on here, but um, uh, uh, I've. I, all, all I know, I was reading some. I was reading something about Hinckley. His last name is Hinckley. Um, he started it. Um, he's he, uh, f- famous for uh, uh, for like you know fast talking and getting people on board. Um, one in one article in from the San Diego Union Tribune um, described him as more hated than the Enron guy in craft beer. <laughs> oh, ow! But so because I remember seeing when they had filed for bankruptcy around then. They rebranded, they consolidated their whole distribution network, and basically were just like Southern California, right? a little bit of Northern California, and that was about it. And they basically limped along like that until, well, uh, this December. Now, let's talk about the people on the other side of the table. Um, as we talked about back in episode 54, in November of 2020, Afira, a cannabis company out of Canada, acquired Sweetwater Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, what we didn't talk about later, because it's a little bit of outside of our sphere of influence, is that Afira itself was swallowed up by Tilray. Tilray, at the time, focused on growing cannabis and research. Um, and when they combined with Afira, um, they did, which they did so in a way that makes absolutely no sense outside of Wall Street. They call it like a reverse acquisition. Okay. Uh, that means something to you. <laughs> okay. Um, I just imagine two blobs of money glomming together to form a bigger blob of money. Basically. Okay. Um, After that deal, they became the largest cannabis company in the world. Fun fact, Tilray, a few years ago, began a joint venture with AB InBev to create a non-alcoholic THC-infused beverage for the Canadian market. I feel like I remember hearing about that. I mean, that's neither here nor there. It's just, uh, I, that, I don't think it has any effect on Sweetwater or uh, no. or Green Flash. I just like that tidbit. I think I, we're at the... I've, I feel like I remember hearing, like, AB was doing a joint venture for a cannabis drink in Canada with some cannabis company, and I never thought of it, and I was just like, oh, whatever. Because I know Constellation has heavy influence in Canopy Growth Company, right. a cannabis company up in Canada. Um, I just like, I think we're at the point where we can play six degrees of separation from AB InBev with any brewery in the world. So, (laughs) um, anywho, um, what this means for green flash is as hazy as the air around Sweetwater's brewing facility. Um, uh, according to a lot of stories, um, this is, this is just another acquisition complete with the normal platitudes. Um, this is great for everybody involved. We're going to revitalize the brand. Um, we're, you know, we're going to, you know, bring Green Flash back. It's got a great deal for Green Flash and Sweetwater working together to, to recreate beer as we know it. I was never a huge fan of Green Flash. I was kind of fine with it being dead. I, I mean, they were very okay. I, um, their, their West Coast IPA um, was, was what they were known for, but it was... It was a. It was good. Yeah. It definitely wasn't anything that. Uh, like they had some decent IPAs, but. I mean, they were briefly. They I'll say they're briefly here in this market. But, a big. 
part is I think they also do the is it the Friar Ale for uh fuck what's it the San Diego Padres I got nothing now uh, so I think that might play I mean I was always more impressed with Al- Alpine Alpine I thought made some fantastic beer there Which, Nelson I, I honestly Alpine for some reason it just could never get in my head that Alpine was a California brewery it always just, I was like, that's a Colorado brewery because, you know, mountains. <laughs> Alpine. Alpine. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, no, they're Nelson, and there's something else they made that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, but um, anyway, um, but uh, according to the article from the Full Pint, um, production, well, um, the, 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 the deal is only for the name Green Flash. The facility and all the equipment belongs is, to private equity. Is still staying with a private equity firm, and and according to this article, um, over the next ninety days, um, San Diego is going to wind down um, all production of Green Flash um, and Alpine, and both will be produced out of Sweetwater's new facility in Fort Collins, Colorado. Which is kind of an interesting choice to me. Which, when I saw that, I was like, finally Alpine will be made in a place <laughs> where it makes fucking sense to me. Is that all that you care? Like, finally, Alpine's being made where there's mountains. That's all yes. I care about. <laughs> yes. I mean, their, their, their logo of kind of like a German-looking town that's out of San Diego is a little bit rich. but Yeah. But, I don't know. It just it strikes me as... A strange choice because I think if Green Flash represents anything uh, in the craft beer business, it is the fact that it, it's like a cautionary tale of growing too fast. And to pull Green Flash completely out of San Diego seems to be an odd choice to me. So, quick side note. Yeah. The Friar Ale was made by Ballast Point. So I was mixing up my two articles. Every San Diego brewery looks the same to you, Tyler. Oh, well, when you have two of them being sold in a fucking week, <laughs> it gets a little fucking confusing. Uh, but when you brought up the fact that their facilities and that aren't being sold, I bet within the next year Tilray buys it because... Uh, the one thing that I saw that really kind of caught my eye was uh, Tilray, when they were acquiring Green Flash and Alpine for $5,133,000 in cash and stock, so about $150 a barrel, mm. uh, it also acquired Cheese Grits, which is the LLC that owned all of Sweetwater's real estate. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if... Sweetwater was renting or if the owners owned the property separately in another LLC. But, I so, mean, Sweetwater... With a name sold, like Cheese Grits. It sounds like Sweetwater owned it. sounds like something a stoner would name a company. Like, yes. what What are you going to call the company? Cheese Grits. Gr- che- I could really go for some Cheese Grits, man. Yeah. What the fuck are Cheese Grits? Grits with cheese. <laughs> Duh, bro. Uh, but, so, I, I mean, they bought it, what? They bought Sweetwater in October? Uh, November of 2020. Okay. Wow, it's been over a year? Yeah. 
Really? This been episode. That was back way back in episode fifty four. Damn. Okay. So yeah. Welcome to well, welcome to uh, twenty twenty two, Tyler. Fuck. I thought it was twenty twenty one. No, just feel it's time has, still has really no meaning. That's the problem. So I could see in about a year to two years them well, buying green flashes facility equipment and being like, okay, yep, it's back open. Here's the Green Flash Sweetwater Alpine Tap Room in San Diego. Well, I'm I'm not a whole I'm not completely con- convinced of that either because the well, the other concerning thing about it is Tilray itself. Um, Green Flash I think still has a lot of value. The name still means something, and the right company that's willing that is willing to and can uh, put in the time, effort, money, whatever needs to happen to. You know, to to build this company back up, and it would it's going to require a lot of build up because I it sounds like the CEO bur- uh, uh, burned through quite a lot of goodwill on, in 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 his tenure. Um, yeah, I think there's I think there is a good investment there. The problem, at least on the surface, is Tilray does not appear to be that company. A cursory glance at their performance and financials over the last couple of uh, uh, last couple of years uh, paints a picture of a company that is deep, deep, deep in debt. Um, and add to that decreasing revenue due to increased con- competition, and this is actually starting to sound familiar. This is exactly what killed Green Flash: is that deep in debt and you know expanding way too fast into a market that was that had too much competition, having to, you know, and, and in Tilray's case, having to lower the price of their product, thus resulting in lower revenues. But they are doing something Green Flash never did and try to diversify. True. Uh, and the one advantage. Tilray will have is now having both Sweetwater and uh, Green Flash is you go in and you go, sweet. Both are going to the same distributor coming out of the same facility. We've got an East Coast Legacy brand, a West Coast Legacy brand. We're covering our coast and you can slowly work towards the middle. Uh, well, except for that, I mean, well, they, they're and not really west. It, it's moving over to uh, to Colorado, but and near enough. But you're still there's no way they're not going to take green sell green, not sell green flash in California. No, true. So you're going to cover well, your west you, coast. You, it's you going would, to be sent would, from Denver. You would hope so. I mean, that would you. It would be incredibly fucking stupid. stupid. And if I remember correctly from the Sweetwater deal, the head of Sweetwater is still the head of like the beer division. So I'm assuming Green Flash is being put under his umbrella. So you have a. I can only assume that. I mean, Hinkley is. Hinkley got pushed out. Yeah. Um, which so, much, much, it sound, again, I it, uh, read a few articles and it sounds like much to the rejoicing of a whole lot of investors. <laughs> so I feel. Running under the green flash will be under the Sweetwater umbrella, and they've ran. Sweetwater's been around for a long fucking time and ran very highly. So I feel they'll be good. Run it. You're both coast. If you leave the middle of the country open, who gives a shit? No, absolutely. I mean, and and I mean, you're not wrong. Um, if it's if it's you know if it's if it's managed correctly, um, you know the only thing I was kind of and and again I'm just I was kind of like trying to pick up what I could on Tilray at least Tilray 
in kind of a rare instance, is a publicly traded company. So there is quite a bit of information about it, only some of which I understand. Let's, let's admit that right off the bat. Um, I know probably as much as, uh, uh, what's the mad money guy, Kramer? Yeah, I know just a little bit more than and him. you can yell just as loud. Um, I, the thing is, I don't have the little, the noisy sound thing. He's, basically, he's a toddler, is what I'm saying. I've got, I am your noisy sound thing. <laughs> Anywho, um, but I mean, as I'm looking through it, I mean, it's painting a company of, of, it, it, what I'm seeing is a company that is, you know. It's top heavy. It's, it's. Well, it's anemic at best, and just uh, in, and just slumping at worst. It's 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 lost from its height of fifty dollars a share. Um, it's down to f- almost five now. Okay. Um, so uh, obviously, investors are not terribly are not terribly. Uh, um, um, they don't have a lot of confidence now. Could Tilray pull this off and prove me wrong? Mm-hmm. Yes, and by the way, I hope they do. And I think if they basically. Look if at they, the head of Sweetwater and say, "I mean, really, you're in charge of all our beer brands. Make I mean, us money." I mean, no shit, really. I mean, if this is their, if this, if this is their answer to, um, to their, to, to slumping uh, sales in cannabis and and research and and what have you. Um, well, first of all, I, I, I'm, my instinct is to say, yeah. So we have money troubles. So we're gonna get into American craft beer. I'm gonna go, ooh. Listen. <laughs> yes, but you're also picking up established brands. <laughs> I'm just saying. There's the old joke. How do you start? How do you make a small fortune in craft beer? Start with a big fortune. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I get it. <laughs> so I, I, I. But if there wasn't money in scooping up craft breweries, AB wouldn't have done it. Well, I think we're we're, we're going to talk about that in a second because. Uh, I finally got through, through that book you let me borrow, but um, but uh, um, I think that you know that was. Should we talk about this beer before we finish it? I guess maybe we should. We got Fort George's <laughs> magnetic fields, right? Yes. So, fuck, dude, we need to turn the light on in here. I'm getting old. <laughs> Please stand by while Tyler turns on a light so he can so he can see the can and so I can stop fondling him under the table. Well, you can keep following me under the table, but... It just feels dirty if there's too much light. It's because you're used to glory holes. Hey, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the only way I can get laid, man. 7.2% alcohol, so nice. I think it's the newest edition of the magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Canned on 12.6. It's, it's nice. It's a... It's a lovely hazy, and it kind of cements my uh, my assertion before. You know, the Western Collective, um, it's quite good. But again, I'm not sure I would if I, I I'm not sure there's anything in that that makes me think, oh my god, there's something different other than it's a hazy. Because I'm honestly tra- the Western. The one thing I will give it, and I've sit, sat here and shit talked every <laughs> fucking hazy, being like, it's the same five fucking flavors. That was the one hazy where I feel. There was a different flavor. I mean, there was a sharper flavor. There was and, a... But I, I don't know if it was quite sharper to me, but it was it was different for a hazy. Mm-hmm. And a good different, and I liked it. And it, it was solid. It was very well, well done beer. I mean, there's some that do that. Bearded Iris comes to mind. I um, One of my regulars uh, gets Bearded Iris through um, Tavor ah. quite frequently. Um, and he brings those in. Um, and I haven't had 
a bearded iris. So. Um, and uh, but whenever he brings those in, I mean, again, for a hazy, they do have like, oh, this has a little bit of a different flavor. It's more floral. It's more herbal. Mm-hmm. It's got you know white wine or you know something else going for it. Um, so you know, it's, I'm not saying it's not it's 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 impossible to do, but it is it is hard to do. You know. Very good hazies, but yeah, mm-hmm. they, tropical fruit, orange, big yeah. mouthfeel. Fun fact, uh, really quickly, um, BJCP finally updated their uh, uh, style guidelines. You see that? Uh, you told me about it. I and, hadn't actually. And and um, I mean, that's only what eight years since the last time they did it. Six years. Six years. Um, they they finally did add hazy IPA as a as its full category. Um, uh, Twenty one Charlie. Um, you'll never believe what is uh, number one on commercial. Oh, you told me. That. I did. I actually yes. did. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which for you guys being like, well, what's number one on commercial? The Belching Beaver Hazy IPA, right? Be- Belching Beaver's Hazer's gonna haze. Hazer's gonna haze. <laughs> which I thought that was a good hazy, but I don't know if I'd put that as like the epitome of hazy IPA. And you said they didn't even do like Hetty Topper as one of the. Hop- Hetty Topper did not make the uh, list. Which, I feel that was the OG. But, I mean, the OG does not necessarily mean that it's True. the best. That, that that style has evolved a lot in the last couple years. And you of also years, have to but... keep in mind that there's two things that they're trying to do. They, they, they want to... They, availability. Right. There's also availability you got to look at. And that one is more or less uh, readily available. But anyways, before we get way off into the weeds, uh, Tyler, there we have one more acquisition we need to quickly touch on. Yes, we do. Uh, going to the land of Utah. I'm just saying, down under where the kangaroos fuck and the ladies chunder. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that song. <laughs> it's a classic, bro. I mean, I'm aware of it. Don't backtalk, Toto! I just realized right in the middle of that I had no idea what the lyrics were, so I had something about kangaroo fucking and women throwing up. Which is probably, which is not inappropriate for Australia. Uh, But tell us about Uinta. (laughs) So, Uinta, right after all the other shit we talked about, uh, they sold to... Uh, the importer, U.S. Beverage, um, they reached a joint venture. They fucking sold. I was gonna say in quotation marks, in the same way that uh, that uh, uh, Dogfish Head uh, craft, craft beer. beer. Well, I was gonna say uh, joint ventured with uh, uh, with Sam Adams. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the article I found on craftbrewingbusiness.com actually runs down. Basically, all the recent beer sales, uh, they have Bells going to Lion, uh, the Tilray Sweetwater buying Green Flash, which we talked about, uh, Florida's Big Storm Brewing acquired Florida's Darwin Brewing, so there's one we didn't talk about. I didn't want to even dig into that because that's a Florida... Also, I've never heard of either of those, so good for both of you. Uh... I mean, so, just, I mean, Florida does what Florida does best, being incestuous. Yep. So, U.S. Beverage announced that it had formed a joint venture with 
to acquire Utah's largest independent craft brewer, Uinta, uh, and they, to quote the article, it goes, if U.S. beverage isn't on your radar, it's currently the largest independent beer importer in the nation and seventh largest of all U.S. beer importers, according to U.S. Uh, beverages website. Uh, they put out a press release that said Uinta is a strong brand with a state-of-the-art brewery. Uh, the team and culture has been developed over the years and is second to none in the industry. Uh, the acquisition of Uinta creates a tremendous opportunity and synergy. Uh, they share a robust strategic vision for the future. Uh, they built their portfolio on craft, import, cider, and FMBs. Uh, They've got a national network of distributors, um, kind of best known for Moosehead, Innocent Gun. So, few bigger brands, I feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, with this, uh, no details of the transactions were released, uh, but both of them confirmed. You into leadership operations and staff will all remain in place. Do they keep the keep, keep the uh, uh, independent craft logo? I don't think so, but I don't know. Like Dogfish Head and well, because they're still, I mean, because they're owned still by Independent Craft. Um, I guess it. But, I, guess, I guess it gets it comes down to the barrels produced. But if they don't really produce beer, they're importer. Well, they're, wholesaler and importer so i would assume you would lose it but i would assume that the joint venture between dogfish head and sam adams you would have lost it too but you still are or you're still under barrel production uh less than the required which is basically less than yingling i mean i think that's the where they're at now is if you produce what yingling produces or less you can be craft beer yeah and since you're a since they're a wholesaler and an importer they're not really producing any beer they, they're but you're also owned by a whole nother aspect so you're not going to really have it be like and maybe the ba doesn't like oh, fuck it don't care it's an ab InBev. Fine, fuck it. <laughs> this is basically just to show that you're not owned by AB listen, or Molson Corp. Listen, there, we had we had two uh, uh, we had two ideas. One was the upside down ketchup bottle. It sucks, but it works. Oh, stop talking <laughs> shit on the. Logo. The other the other one was basically a middle finger that said, uh, uh, "Fuck AB and Bev." We we were gonna go with that one, but we had to we had to go. Our lawyer said, "Be more tactful." Uh, <laughs> so we went the upside down ketchup bottle. It perplexed. Stop fucking ketchup bottle, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, which, this whole thing, I was like, damn. For one, I forgot Uinta was independent craft. Sure. Which, I, I knew they were independent craft, but it's one of those breweries, kind of like Deschutes, where you're just like, oh, yeah. And there's Uinta there. Yeah. There's, there's them. Yeah, they're independent, but they're big enough that you just kind of forget about them almost. Yeah, but they still have they, they they still do quite a lot of of I mean I I, I paid quite a bit of attention to Uinta because they still uh, unlike some of the bigger breweries still produce quite a lot of special releases mm -hmm. and stuff that are good for bottle shops. So yeah, they're they're sticking to uh, uh to that format, and which I appreciate. Beers have always been solid, delicious, just and 
just I, yeah. Their bottle caps are my favorite bottle caps. With the little compass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just it's an odd thing to be uh, enamored. The marketing person of me. Mm, I, fair enough. I enjoy seeing that little one-off spin on it. Um, well, anyway, um, well, since we were into, since we are into uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions, I thought this would be a uh, a, a, a way to finish, kind of, kind of uh, lead us out of this thing. Before we hop in, should we get into the last beer? Oh yes, um, you brought us a, a night in Tallinn. Yeah, uh, from Von Ebert Brewing out of Portland. Yeah, um, I'm just happy it's not a fucking IPA. Yeah, no, I was like, I, I don't, I've got two. I want something different. Seven point four percent. Baltic Porter, I like. I really like it. A little bit caramely, a little bit chocolatey, super clean, like a decocted nice... for flavor maximization. So I'm assuming they did a decoction mash, which I feel is a, a dying art. It's a pain in the ass. It's, uh... Oh, it, it's a, a full cunt of an issue. Uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna say a pain in the ass. It's a cunt. Uh, <laughs> But, Didn't know cunt was a, a higher up in the in the hierarchy of. <laughs> I guarantee, like six listeners just squirmed hearing the word, and no one squirmed at pain in the ass. So yeah, it ranks higher. Uh, I, I mean, I I prefer a cunt to a pain in the ass myself personally, but. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> just if I had to pick one, we, we could jab this thing in your ass, or you can you know. Have, have this. That. <laughs> I'm gonna take that all day long. Oh, I would too. But when someone's being a pain in the ass or that, I mean, even I mean, if it's like she is a pain in the ass, but she has a cunt. Oh, okay. I'm I'm still on board. <laughs> anyway, it, it, so for those of you who aren't familiar with decoction, it is a pain in the ass slash cunt. Uh, Whichever term you'd prefer to use. Jeremy, would you like to explain the process? I think people are just going to be happy when we stop using the word cunt. Um, basically, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a version it's a cunt of a process. It's a way of doing a step mash. Um, but the way you raise, basically, you, you, you're trying to hit uh, you know, two or three different temperature uh, levels. I was going to say. Which you is know, that mash, you yeah. do different temps. So, you, so usually you're trying to hit a protein rest, an alpha rest, and a, and a beta rest at three different temperatures. Um, now, usually you do, you, you, you do this just by either adding hot water or just you know, using, uh, using your uh, heat elements or whatever you have to, uh, warm. to, to, warm, your, to warm. warm your mash. A decoction specifically, however, is where you scoop out some of the mash, you put it into the boil kettle, and you, and you uh, heat it under on, on an on a, a open flame. And then pour it back into the uh, into the mash, which that's, really caramelizes some of the sugar. Which is yeah, that's what that, that's what makes a decoction kind of unique is that is that by scooping out your mash, putting it in your boil kettle, and then and, and uh, subjecting it to a direct flame, um, you you will caramelize some of the sugars and your and, and make them unfermentable. And basically. well, and apocryphally, you're also supposed to get like some unique fruity flavors that you just can't get otherwise. Um, Outside so, of using some. But with advancements in malting technology, you have melanoid and malt that well, really lends itself to a similar flavor profile. I mean that. I mean therein lies the great. Therein lies the big um, debate. Can you replicate a decoction mask with melanoid and you know and just highly modified modern grain? Not or, specifically, or not exactly, 
but are you close enough to not have to deal with the fucking castle <laughs> of dealing with a decoction mash? I mean, therein lies the therein lies the debate. Um, There's I, the rub, um, so to speak. Uh, me myself personally, uh, whenever I run into a style where a decoction mash is. Uh, traditionally used, I go ahead and bite down on a rope and just do a fucking decoction. And kind of just deal with the cunt. Uh, it's it's messy, it's sloppy, <laughs> it's all over the garage, but at the end I feel better about myself. <laughs> wow, so, we're going to have some shit reviews. <laughs> anyway, but uh, no, this is quite good. Like caramely, like slightly fruity, a little bit roasty, really clean fermentation. Yeah. Uh, um, I was glad this was recommended to me. Uh, they were like, hey, if you're looking for something not IPA, this has been delicious. And I saw it was a porter, and I was like, I feel porter's a super underappreciated style still. And Well, Baltic porter especially. Is it technically a Baltic? I mean, it, I feel like I get like the, like a lager yeast on it, and the uh, and the Baltic porter kind of makes sense. So, I'm not seeing. Oh, yep, Baltic porter. I think I made it up, didn't you? I did. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, to finish up today, I I wanted to um, talk about the uh, a, a book that uh, uh, Tyler let me borrow. Um, finally, <laughs> are you not entertained? <laughs> um, you know. No, I let you t- borrow it a while ago. Just took you that long to read it. Listen, I have a fucking child now. You're lucky if I can get 30 minutes without something vomiting, peeing, or you know, crying upon me. And that's without including the child. Exactly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, books to read during books to read about beer while drinking beer news. Now, for those like me who have to be that basic about their reading habits. Um, in all, though in all serious, I did want to talk about this book because on the podcast because Tyler referenced it quite frequently, and I'm talking about barrel, bourbon barrel aged stout and selling out barrel aged stout and selling out or barrel aged stout and selling out how craft beer became big business by Josh Knoll. Um, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because we reference his work all the time. Uh, he's we a, did fucking today. Um, he uh, Josh Knoll is, is a is works for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, he writes uh, a bunch of articles about craft beer. He's you know. Uh, I, I'm a fan. Um, very simply, if you are at all interested in the history of craft beer and how the industry got to where it is now, which is a clusterfuck of uh, of acquisitions, mergers, and everything else, as we've gone all over today. It looks like a Wall Street spank bank mergers <laughs> and acquisitions because of this. Um, I can only, I can only assume you have some interest because you're listening to a podcast about it, or maybe you just like to hear Tyler say cunt. Um <laughs> This is absolutely essential reading. The whole question is, how many times do we say it in this episode? <laughs> I'll get a counter going, South Park style. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Barrel Age Stout was published in 2018, and it's almost perfectly encapsulates, encapsulates it's good beer, um, <laughs> the most turbulent period in the industry's short history, and it does so with calm reflection, describing in detail what happened and what it meant. Um, if you're looking for something to get the beer geeks fired up and frothing about the evils of AB InBev, well, this isn't really it. Um, in fact, um, as, as an increasingly former anti-AB anti, anti InBev frothing beer geek, myself, um, reading this book actually uh, you know, moved me further down that path, got me to reflect more on my thoughts and opinions, um, opinions I had at the time and where they have stand now, and 
what they are regarding the industry. So basically... It paints AB in a pretty good light in this book. Well, I don't know if... I mean, I it, it takes the evil out of them. Yeah, and it showcases this... At the very least, Goose Island was the one brand AB still hasn't fucked with. Correct. I mean, I will say AB has made, turned them into the TGI Fridays of all their craft brands because you can now buy the beer mac and cheese, all these frozen plates made with Goose Island beer. Uh, but they've never and made their beers, if not overly available, but more readily available. They've never tarnished what made Goose Island Goose Island. I mean, any more than, you know, the, the by the sheer fact of AB InBev acquiring them possibly could. Although, I mean, that was interesting in and of itself, the, uh, um, um, you know, how... I mean, what I liked uh, best about this is, um, is it really does do a very good job of, like, talking about, you know, what the two... Um, what the what you know what everybody's interest was you know uh it, 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 Josh Noel uh, approaches the subject you know talking about um AB you know about AB uh, where where AB and Bev was at the time and they were getting their pasty white asses kicked um by by craft beer and despite you know all their attempts to try to make a craft brand mm-hmm. it just reeked of corporate beer Yes. Um, you know, whatever, you know, no matter what they try to do. And they're, and I, 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 again, if you're a beer geek, you're going to enjoy reading this because you're going to sit there. Oh, I remember that. That was adorable. Cause you're like, sit there and go, oh yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a AB brand. Um, but the, despite their kind of adorable chance uh, attempts to try to make a craft brand from scratch, they, they realized, can. they realized they couldn't do it. And on the other side of the ledger, um, you've got, um, uh, John Hall, who is one of the first guys who I think really envisioned craft beer as a got out of corporate, yeah, as a rebellion. But he also he's one of the he's one of the few um, at the time. I think I mean now you got you know he's in the early class of '88, mm-hmm. um, um, and you know a lot of the brands he started up with, Deschutes is now nationwide, Founders is now nationwide, Bell's fucking close. Um, but I think among them, he was one of the first that said craft beer can, you know, you can make a craft beer brand nationwide. In, nationwide. And by the way, I am going to do that. I think my favorite part about this book to kind of hop in here is having worked for a small upstart brewery is he really showcases the struggles that Goose Island went through early and really kind of gets into the marketing and sales side of it, not just the brewery production side that mm-hmm. I, I feel most like craft beer books talk about. Because uh, he talks about uh, how they realized, oh, fuck, we can't bottle this beer with compressed air. We have to use CO2. Oh, uh, I, he did a radio ad. Being like, we're the Michael Jordan of craft beer. And then Michael Jordan people were like, you can't use this. (laughs) And he's like, my bad, I'll pull the ad. Or I think my favorite was talking about the tap handles. Yeah, how the... Where he did different tap handles for different beers because if he did the same tap handle, places would be like, well, we already have one of your tap handles. 
we're not going to carry As, another. But if it's a different tap handle, he they'd be like, yeah, we'll have that and that. Well, he's one of the first people who envisioned like the the. What the hell is there? Uh, the urban wheat. Uh, the three one three one two. Thank you. Use um, the area code and really define it. Well, and I mean, he was one of the first. He was one of the the first uh, people who came out with this idea of like this is going to be almost like a separate brand. Yep. And, and he was hesitant on it at first with the name. Uh huh. Because they wanted to call it urban wheat. Right. Um, I mean, the branding was was uh, turned out to be brilliant, and the you know, and and it is a described when you when you when you you've got. You got honkers with the with their with their uh, goose there, and then you've got uh, you know the Bourbon f- County with the golden with goose. the gold with the golden goose, and then you've got uh, the urban wheat on you know on a bar right there in one bar. You've got three tap handles, and none of them and none of them look like yeah, none of them I look mean, like two look alike, but, but I mean, but it's one you of those you can tell one special because it's golden. But it's one of those. If you already have honkers and you already have the three one two, are you really going to pass up on Bourbon County? And yeah. the answer is no. There you've got three handles in one bar. But you can consistently have two because the three one two looked nothing like it. It was a fucking payphone. Right. And then I, I, I do appreciate that he brought up that that uh, um, that that strange um, uh, moral. I guess a. Hey, uh, Moral panic, uh, uh, collective hysteria, where everybody, well, where AB, now they describe it in the, in the book as like, as like somebody getting overzealous. I'm still convinced it was a trial balloon. You know, I think they, I think they, they started doing like, let's see how people react. Oh, not great. Okay. never mind. We were, we were just, it was, it was just somebody getting overzealous. I, I, you know, that's, that's my theory. But the idea that, you know, they started buying up the, uh, uh, the random area codes that led everybody and their mother to buy up their own area codes, which is why we have the 208 (laughs) session. 805. Um, those are the big ones. Yeah. Uh, most of them went away, but there's still a few. Also. The one thing that was kind of interesting to read was him basically critiquing the big batches coming out of AB's major facilities. That's I found and like reading the back and forth. I found that fascinating because I think the the biggest the biggest thing that all you know and they and they knew it from the get go. I mean, it was they they every craft beer nerd. Was going to over criticize. We're, we're going to rip the, them the first sh- couple batches. They're going to rip them to shreds, and they're going to. They said that we need to make this beer as close to as but, perfect. And I think everybody assumed that that ABM Bev was going to come in and make them use cheap ingredients or cut back on expensive ingredients, what have you. But what I didn't, what I never thought about until I read this book was the equipment, and it actually is the shape of ABM Bev's tanks that change the flavor of yep. the Goose Island IPA it's more the lay than down tanks. Yeah, it was, it's just the shape of the tanks more than anything else. Because it changes the whole yeast profile. Mm-hmm. And so, and you kind of sit there and go, oh, I never even thought about that. But it, yeah, the amount of time and energy and sheer amount of money and wasted beer they spent trying to replicate. Perfect it. Re- yeah, on those tanks is kind of interesting in itself. And I also appreciate that, I mean, that Josh Knoll did cover the criticism um, in the I th- again, he approached it as a journalist because, you know, beer nerds, myself included, I lost their shit. And I stand by losing their shit. <laughs> and I feel it was nice he took a neutral approach on the sun's meteoric downfall. Yeah. And we covered that a little in one of the previous Greg episodes Hall. Yeah, Greg of Hall. Greg Hall when he had 
opened his cider company and we <laughs> talked, I think something had happened with the cider company that we had talked about Yeah. after I read this book and I was like, we have to talk about it, Jeremy. <laughs> Um, no, where, I mean, where he basically had to go crawling back to ABM, but can you guys bail me out? And they're like, Jesus yep. Christ. After he pissed his way out of fucking Goose Island, yeah. <laughs> Quite literally, yeah. in some cases. Um, my one, my one criticism about this book, uh, however, is, um, I, I mean, it kind of goes with what he's trying to do. He's, he, he's, he tries to tell a story from numerous perspectives, and so he tell and, and, and trying to tell a story. He is writing this kind of like, you know, a narrative. So he goes and tells a story through the eyes of, of uh, John Hall, or Greg Hall, and then he tells a story through the eyes of, you know, AB and Bev execs, and he tells a story through people who are working Tackle on the ground. employees. But the problem is, in order to do that, he you have to kind of jump around in time, and there gets to be a point, especially in the middle of the book, where you're where it's kind of unclear when you're talking about. Um, that was the one thing that kind of that pulled me out of the narrative. Uh, that was like, okay, wait, 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 wait. when, what, 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 we've gone back in time. Where are we talking about? That's really the only criticism I have. It's a minor one. I was gonna say, yeah, I don't know if that was a big hiccup for me. I, I remember one time being like, okay, wait. It was... I, and, like, holding the book out further and being like, okay, I'm at this point in time now. Okay. I mean, it was noticeable. And I just, you know, I think it's worth noting that that's the only... And that's really the only criticism I have. And it's a minor thing. And it's more story flow than actual content. I mean, well, I mean, the question is, you know, I mean, if Josh Knowles sitting at home listening to this, if, if he's not. If you yeah. are, kudos. We'd love to have you on the podcast. If you don't want to tarnish your brand and not come here, we get it. Uh, I mean, fair enough. But if he was said, how would you have done it? I'm like, I have no fucking idea. It's just there are some times and in, in your book, I'm trying to figure out where the fuck we are. It pulled me out a little I, bit. I don't know if you could write this book without having I there, there there might be a way I don't know I was, there, there, that pulled me out of it a little bit. Other than that, it was absolutely fantastic. It was uh, it was as engaging a, a, a book as a book about business. Well, I was gonna say, for what it is, I never wanted to put it down. I'd be like, "Fuck, I need to go to bed. I'll just finish this chapter." <laughs> be like, uh, I, I, "I think I could start," and then I'm like, "Oh, I should have been in bed two hours ago." Uh, I mean, especially and and what we're talking about and you know what we're talking about today because I I you know for obvious reasons I was kind of getting to like oh we got other things to talk about I kind of want to ditch the book report, but I'm like sitting there going you know what, I mean this was the root of where we are now and you know what we talked about especially with this like this was the experiment yeah and the answer is can craft beer be big business and the answer is yeah with some major adjustments on both sides including on the corporate level. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a part that was fun, kind of reading about the people getting worked up about the different policies coming into place. Mm-hmm. Maybe in bed, and yeah, I mean it's a, it it starts a chapter with um, uh, one chapter shortly after the sale um, about drug well, tests. Uh, well, there's drug testing, but I mean the the one that that that's, and I think I had heard this story before, but. Uh, had a story of a woman who worked there who, like you know, she, like she'd done every day of her life, you know, grabbed her water water bottle, went down to the, uh, you know, went down to the brewery, filled her water bottle with uh, uh, water out of the tank that was filtered or something or other. Um, I forget. Uh, I 
I think I remember this. Yeah, she, I mean, there's some there, she filled it out of the tank, which is you know it's filtered or something, or and then she walked back. She walked back to her office, and there happened to be a safety officer there who noted somebody in the brew house wearing open shoes, and they got dinged for that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like this, you know, it was this this thing that was like you know when they were a small family brew, you know, no one fucking cared. No one fucking cared if someone came down. You know, just to just fill a water bottle, but it does. But it, but at the same time, it does fucking matter, mm-hmm. especially when you get a certain when you get to a certain level. And that's the kind of you the got to reduce your liability. You know, I mean, that's it, it. It really is kind of the culture shock of oh, we're corporate owned now, and it, 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 I appreciate he talks a lot about how John Hall was kind of pushed out. Um, Greg Hall, but John Hall, I don't feel was ever pushed out. He was pushed to arm's length. And remained there. I, I feel... And then he stepped out. But, I mean, it talks about when they really started expanding in different countries. He was still there for the launch events. I feel... But I feel like when you when you launch Goose Island nationally and you find out about it in an email, maybe pushed out is the wrong word, but marginalized is... is, is... Like I said, pushed to an arm's length. I mean, it, it definitely. I I got this feeling that you know there wasn't a whole lot of um, consideration for the the for where the brewery came from, especially you know. I mean, I, I think John Hall still had this idea that he would still be in charge, mm-hmm. and the the major wake up call was, oh, I'm not. I'm in charge of both Jack and shit, and that's it. That's all I'm in charge of anymore. Um, my business card says I'm in charge of a lot, but I'm not. But I'm not. I I, I show I'm up. I'm the assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> What's the regional manager do? He reports to the the to, to the to the national manager. Who does he report? Well, what what does he do? Well, he reports to. What do you do? I listen. Can I get you a beer? <laughs> I sit at this bar stool and I have a beer every day. <laughs> That's not a bad job. I'd take that job. If, you know, six figures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, no, seriously, uh, if you, uh, in order to make, I, I think it's really valuable, especially right now, because we're, we're, I feel like we're entering into a, another phase with, because the, uh, especially the, the breweries, you know, the, your, your early breweries that we saw with Bells, I mean, you're, you're looking at a generation of, of guys who started this that are, I was going to say, this is about to become a lot more relevant again, but it also really shows like, if you've paid attention to craft beer since 2010, really, and you read this book, you go, oh, that's what influenced that decision. Oh, I can yeah. see where that came from. Let me tell you, even if you were, even if you were like, tendentionally, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't in the uh, industry during most of this book, but I was a craft beer fan. And even, like, on the peripheral, you're going to, you're going to read this, you're going to go, holy shit, I remember that. I, I was going <laughs> to say, I did that a lot, and I turned 21 in 2013. Yeah. So, being like, oh, shit. Like, I started getting into craft beer as this was taking but, over. But frankly, even if you're turning 21 today and you're interested in... in what's you know, going on. What's going on in the, in the industry, maybe you're looking... This gives you a roadmap. This is... I mean, it's a, it's, it's a brilliantly written book. Um, and it really is like... The you know the evolution it mostly follows Goose Island as the as the name suggests, but it really is like the evolution of the craft beer industry from a bunch of crazy guys in their garages 
you know, to where cider started to take off. Yeah, into in you know into uh, brands that like Sierra Nevada, Deschutes, Goose Island, um, Sweetwater, the No Man's Land. Yeah, and it it does set up the you know what we keep on talking about the No Man's Land. You know that Green Flash found themselves in. <laughs> That you either, I mean, you either have to push through and get to the other side, or you... Quickly. You know, well, I mean, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to die, or you're going to get snatched up, mm-hmm. um, unless you can get there by yourself. And and getting snatched up is the quickest and easiest way, but it does come to with... get to the other side. But it does come with costs, obviously. Mm-hmm. Because at that point in time, you do lose uh, uh, any... Uh, but it was crazy, like reading through this because they had several different options and him actually he weighed john hall weighed the pros and cons of every option before electing the ab inbound uh-huh. which at, at least from my perspective when this all kind of went down or right after this went down everyone made it seem like ab came in and took goose island no, uh, I, I, I think you I, also got to think that sale took place right around when I was getting into craft beer. I was, I was always of the mind that you know that I mean the the the, the story was that you know Goose Island sold out. Now, I mean even in my in even in my you know most like you know uh, 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 cynical moment. Well, I was gonna say uh, 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 most like. Oh, oh, fuck AB InBev. You know, I mean, if you really drilled down, I'm like, yeah, but I mean, it may have been the right decision for them. And it, I think it, and I think this book talks about it, and I think it still is the right decision for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the deal absolutely made sense, and it actually brought craft beer into what it is today. Into mainstream. But, um, but even at the time, and, you know, and, and Josh Knoll talks a whole lot about the. Uh, in fact, I, I love the fact that Josh Knoll even brought up the like the uh, uh, the parody Twitter account that somebody created, <laughs> yeah. like Goose Island PR. I mean, that's kind of how uh, how deep into uh, into this he got. And I like the, the fact he brought up the CBA, mm-hmm. Craft Brewers Alliance, the Kono Red Hook, um, and he kind of talked about the. You know the origins. I mean, I kind of, I, I, I kind of knew this, but the origins of the Brewers Association, the BA, kind of being tied into, we need some, you know, alliance. We, we need some organization to preserve um, and, uh, and promote. Isolation John Paul went through from the BA when he made the choice to sell. Yeah. Because he was, he was, he was well thought of. In that organization, and all of a sudden, you just sold to the person they all stood against. Yeah. Um, which was, I mean, it was a, it's, it's a, it's, it was a brave decision. I gotta say. I mean, oh. it's, um, I mean, you, you, it's definitely the. The book's well rounds almost every aspect. Um, so anyway, yeah, we could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. We could just read it on the air, but we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, could purchase the book from this guy. It's worth some. Seriously, seriously, go to Josh Knoll's house and, uh, and knock on his door. No, don't do that. Do not do, not do that. <laughs> but it's actually uh, the 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 book is called Barrel Aged Stout Selling Out uh, uh, Goose Island, Anheuser Busch, and how craft beer became big business. Um, it is, it's fantastic. Tyler, do you have anything else for us today? Nope, that's about it for me. Uh, well, I think that will be uh, all, all from all of us today. Um, uh, 
well, you know, thank you for tuning into uh, It's All Beer uh, Mergers and Acquisitions Edition. Uh, if you would like uh, more of this, you can find us on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, it's All Beer One. That's where we post a bunch of stories. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of things coming in from all over, so it's going to be a fun little uh, uh, update that I'm going to have to do later today. Um, we are on Instagram and uh, Facebook, uh, where I post pictures and other random stuff, uh, where I post updates and crying about how all the news happened while we were on break. God damn you, motherfuckers. Um, and also, if you want to get a hold of us, uh, we're at itsallbeer at gmail.com. Um, and if you'd like to leave us a rating, if you'd like to stop using the word cunt so much... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can do that in iTunes and Stitcher and uh, and uh, um, other places. I'm sure you know if you find a place that says "rate this podcast," oh, do so. Uh, five stars and you know tell us what words you want us to use more and less. Um, <laughs> I think that'll be quite enough from us. I'm Jeremy Jones. I'm Tyler Zimmer. I'm gonna have a beer. Have fun.